Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Looking for a way to build daily prayer discipline? Seen the rise in mindfulness meditation, but not sure if it is possible to meditate in a way that's consistent with your Catholic faith? Just looking for a way to breathe new life into your existing prayer routine? No matter what you're looking for, Hollow is here to help. Hollow is a Catholic prayer and meditation app that helps users deepen their relationship with God through audio-guided contemplative prayer sessions. From meditations on the daily gospel to the rosary to daily examines, Hollow has something for everyone. Hollow is the number one Catholic app in the U.S. It is free to download and has permanently free content, but you can also check out all of the premium sessions for 30 days, risk-free, by signing up at www.hollow.app/breadbox. Hello and welcome to Beneath the Surface. My name is Paul Morano. My fellow truth seekers, today we have our guest right there, Mr. John Tudors. John, welcome. Hello. Ready to delve beneath the surface with us tonight? Yes, I am. Awesome. Well, tonight we have a very uh, interesting topic entitled Cleansing of the Temple. The Cleansing of the Temple. And this, of course, will be in reference to both the church and the individual temples of ourselves, temples of the Holy Spirit. Um, we are beneath the surface, if you have never listened to us before. Um, and uh, basically, we, uh, we talk about uh, topics. We try to delve beneath the surface on them to get to uh, deeper understandings of things. And between John, you and I, hopefully we can uh, delve a little bit and try to understand some of the, the mystery and the metaphorical goals that, uh, that we have on this and every topic that we do. So That is true. Let us proceed. The cleansing of the temple, John. Lots of meaning to this. It begins in the Gospels. It has symbolic meaning. It, it has meaning for our lives. It certainly relates to what needs to be done in our church, not to mention in the souls of me and you. Uh, but let's begin where it's uh, where we take this uh, phrase from, and that is the four Gospels. The cleansing in the temple is in, actually in all four Gospels, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah, um, it, Mark, Luke, and John, without exception. Yeah, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the cleansing of the temple is found more at the end of, the, of their Gospel, whereas the Gospel of John, it's found in chapter 2, which is close to the beginning of the Gospel, right after the wedding at Cana story. Yeah, uh, part of it, too, is that John has less events, if you will, but he tends to go into greater detail 
and with very specific purpose. There's, there's layers in all the Gospels, but in John's in particular, uh, much, much more so. So he, he picks certain events in the public ministry of Jesus for good reason, to communicate uh, not just that particular event, but in many different layers having to do with individual persons as well as the church as a whole. Okay, so before we get into the symbolic value of the cleansing of the temple and what it means to you and I, what it means to our church, what did Jesus mean by it? Why did he go in that temple when he went at, after he came into Jerusalem to celebrate uh, Passover? Um, went into that temple and he started whipping the animals and cleansed everybody out of there that, was, that were money changers and so forth. What was the purpose? Yeah, well, uh, he kind of said it himself. It was uh, they were making his house a den of thieves. Now, what was supposed to be a place of worship, uh, and granted, there, you know, back then there was animal sacrifice that was common both in ancient uh, Israel as well as the pagan world. Mm. Uh, and so, to a certain extent, there would be a need of that, but it actually encroached within the temple itself. And so, the the area which was meant for worship of God was instead uh, de facto worship of money and things. One thing interesting in the line that you just mentioned, it begins with my father's house is meant to be a, a house of prayer, but you have made yeah. it a den of thieves. That's in and of itself must have been shocking to those listening to him. Not our father's house and not Yahweh's house or our Lord's house, but my father's house. Yeah, I suppose in the heat of the moment of getting chased out with uh, with a with a uh, a carpenter with a strong arm, I'm sure, uh, who actually they scripture tells us that he actually fashioned the whip out of cords, meaning he took some time out. It wasn't like he just saw whip and said, yeah. "Let me go." go. You know, that's a great point. This is very intentional. That's a great point. I think a lot of people might say. Jesus was a little, um, he, he wasn't really in control of himself. Are you sure? And then, of course, the skeptics would say, this is not the sign of somebody who was actually God in the flesh. But what, I think what you're saying is uh, very important. This was intentional. It wasn't like Jesus lost, lost control. He didn't lose his temper. He went in there and he, t he intentionally, like you said, made, made cords and made whips and uh, cleansed the temple of all of those things, all of those unholy things that should not have been going on in that temple. Yeah, it actually makes me think of uh, a parent who purposefully disciplines their child. I remember working with this one woman, and it seems strange to me because that wasn't my experience, but her father was a uh, Protestant evangelical pastor, and he was disciplined very seriously. And when he went to go spank any of his kids for any disciplinary reason, he would actually tell them why he was doing it. So it was a very rational approach to discipline. Yeah. And this episode kind of makes me think of that. Yeah. You ever hear the saying, uh, this will hurt me more than it hurts you from a parent? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah, it, de it definitely speaks about the intention, the intentionality. <laughs> Say that five times fast. The intentionality of, of Christ as he was doing this, he meant to do it. It wasn't, a, he didn't fly off the cuff. Um, it's, it's an important uh, sign for him to do this because right afterwards he 
um, you know, they said, you know, what authority do you have to do this? You know, by what authority? Who do you think you are, basically, is, is what the Jews were saying at that time. And he said something like, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Right, and their immediate reaction was, oh, this physical temple that took how many, what, decades to build? They said it took 46 years to build this temple. Wow. And by the way, I'm not sure if it's any... Uh, coincidence or a mistake, if you will, that uh, the it took 46 books to build the Old Testament. So there might be some symbolic value there too. But they said well, it took. Well, yeah, I mean that that depends on your counting too. Yeah. I don't know how many they had in the Septuagint at the time. Right, but uh, they said it took 46 years to build this temple. You know, all we have here, and you're going to build it back up in three days? What do you? They probably thought he was crazy. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's it's a uh, it's a paradox. To I mean, obviously he's he's speaking in layers. There, he's speaking of his own uh, personal temple, which is yeah. um, telling too. What we'll yes. get to a little later in this conversation that it's not just the, the communal temple that we use for worship is directly related to ourselves, which is supposed to be a temple of God by our nature. God created us that way. Let's get to that now. Jesus was actually speaking about the temple of his body. Yes? yes. Okay. And the temple of his body, of course, was the new temple that was going to um, be the place of the presence, the fullness of the presence of God, just like the old temple was, was thought to be or with, the old, with the old covenant. So that old temple is going to be destroyed. Jesus knew this. It was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. And, but, but what's, uh, took its place, of course, was the new temple of the body of Christ. And that new temple and that mystical body of Christ has its stones, or if it's, or its cells, depending on the, the metaphor you use, are all of those who are baptized into Christ. So on the one hand, he's speaking about the temple of himself and his body. On the other hand, he's speaking of the temple that includes you, me, and every baptized Christian. Oh, very much so. And that, that echoes through scripture. For example, in the book of Revelation, when you skip to almost all the way to the end, where it talks about the heavenly Jerusalem coming out of the sky. I mean, that's, that is historically been uh, thought to represent the church. Yeah. Why do things, I'm going to get to a, let me ask you a beneath the surface question. Why do things need cleansing? Well, what God creates doesn't need cleansing per se, meaning mm. um, in as it comes from God, but we need cleansing due to sin. So in other words, God created everything good yes. uh, because God is all good. He couldn't create anything evil. Wouldn't make sense. God created everything good. It was our free will, of course, beginning in our first parents, that began to um, taint uh, his pristine creation. Um. So because of original sin and what it has done to human nature and the inherent selfishness that comes with that and the snowball effect, all of those things, John, uh, contribute to this continuous need of renewal, not only in the individual, but in the communal church. Yes? Oh, yes. And the, the renewal itself doesn't just happen, uh, isn't just needed because... Uh, we exist in time, and so we progress along, progress along uh, successively. But in a certain sense, because we're made for God, 
who's immutable, meaning he doesn't change by his neighbor, nature. But there's also this very interesting, I don't know if you want to call it a paradox, but a mystery about God, where he's all always constantly renewing, ever ancient, ever new. And so there's, I think there's a twofold aspect to that um, that's perhaps worth uh, uh, looking at, not just that we ourselves, you know, we get up, we fall down, we get up, we fall down. So there's that type of renewal, but then there's that, that life-giving uh, nature of God that is always the same and yet always perfectly invigoratingly new and renewing. And of course the words we're using like renewal in that sense, I think really fall short. Uh, Thomas Aquinas would talk about analogy when we're talking about God, because all the words that we have, they can get close enough for us in our intellect, but well, they all really fall short of his perfection. When we talk about God, yes, uh, because of course he's boundaryless and language only speaks with, uh, you know, with uh, about finite things. However, um, we are talking also about ourselves and how we are affected by his perfection. And we are made new in that sense. So um, would you say that there's, um, that renewal is needed in our post-Lapsarian, our post-Eden worlds on a regular basis because of oh, sin? Absolutely. I can just say that from personal experience. Yeah. I'm sure if anyone really yeah. looks at themselves, they'll say, yeah, I need it too. I mean, one moment I'm thinking, wow, I really love God. I'm feeling kind of holy. And then yeah. not more than a few seconds later, I'm sinning again. Yeah. You know? And even St. Paul, you know, lofty St. Paul for all his great works, he would, he would kind of publicly complaining in the letter saying, I do not, I do what I do not want to do. I mean, he yeah. recognizes that he desires God, he wants God, but his weak human nature. And that's a huge thing. That's a huge step that he recognizes it. I mean, yeah. It means that he's, that God's grace is working in him because most sinners don't even recognize they're sinners. Yes, that's hugely, hugely important. In fact, if we think of just something practical that perhaps most people are familiar with, at least someone knows someone who's gone through a 12-step program like AA, yes. Alcoholics Anonymous, or they themselves have gone through it. And one of the key steps in there is to actually recognize how weak you are and that you yes. do need help from a higher power. Okay. And we are weak. Just getting back to the, uh, the source of this, we are weak because of original sin and our own sins. Another analogy, I suppose, uh, in a post-Eden world is that if you were to um, leave your house, just your house um, uh, to itself, after about a month, you'll begin to see all of the dust that begins to settle. And if you leave it, after a few months, after a couple of years, it begins to really be noticeable. Um, perhaps that's an analogy of what sin does to us, even when we don't even recognize it. And hence that, that, that need for renewal on a continuous basis. Yeah, actually, as you were talking about that, I was thinking my, my apartment probably gets a little more than most. So that, uh, oh, great from here. Yeah. yeah. That's really good. I like those. Those books are impressive. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. There's, uh, there's, uh, there's, uh, they do fill a shelf nicely. So then let's distinguish between effect and condition. Or, or let me put it this way, guilt and the human condition. Because when we recognize sin, when we do it intentionally with knowledge and free will, we're guilty. 
And so in that sense, we need to, as Catholics, of course, we recognize the necessity of going to confession in order to cleanse our temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is us, of guilt. But we could say even when that's done, or even when we don't consciously recognize our sins, but they affect us even if we're not guilty of them. If we do something objectively wrong, it's going to have some kind of effect on us, even if we're not knowingly and willfully doing it. So all those things build up. So it's not only, here's, here's the point I'm trying to make, it's not only confessing your sins, which of course is the most important thing, but it's also doing penance in order to cleanse yourself. Yes. Tell me about the importance penance. of penance. Penance is huge. Penance and, and, uh, and reform, I would say as well too. So penance, of course, you can think of restitution, right? If I, if I break uh, Farmer Bob's window, restitution yeah. is I give him a new window or I pay for a new one. Now, that feels good for two parties, doesn't it? The part, him and you. Yes. Now, in that sense, in that example, of course, there's, there's no, you know, assuming no malicious intent, there's really no sin per se on that. I could have just been playing ball with someone and someone hits the, you know, the home run, knocks out the window. Right. Apologies, I'll make amends. But in relation to God, of course, it's infinite because God's infinite. So even the smallest wrong against God yeah. is something infinitely beyond our own natural powers to repair on our own. Yes, yes. You, uh, you offend the, the infinite and eternal uh, perfection or majesty of God. Uh, that's, it's impossible to make up on our own. That's a very good point. The analogy I like to use when I teach my, my uh, students is that it's very easy for a child to... Uh, knock over the extremely expensive vase of his mother after his mother said, don't play near here because I don't, want, I don't want you to touch this. So he goes over, he disobeys, he does it. It breaks into a million pieces. There's no possible way the child could ever fix that on his own. But it was very easy for him to break that on his own. And that's kind of like what sin is to us vis-a-vis -vis God, isn't it? It's very easy for us to do, but it's impossible for us to fix on our own. Yeah. It really is. It really yeah. is. I mean, in a certain sense, you know, you and I, if I, if I offend you, well, in a very real way, we're, we're both equals as far as our dignity as human persons. Right. So I could apologize to you and say, yeah, sure, no problem, John. And then, you know, we go and, and uh, play tennis or something like that. And yeah. I'll, all is good. But in, in God... And I'll beat you. Six games to four. Uh, you, you, you might, but we'll yeah. find out because I'm getting in better shape and soon. Yeah. I'm you know, you're doing your, your Exodus 90, which we'll talk about a little later on the show. Uh, speaking yeah. of minutes, but uh, yeah. I do want, I do want to mention that later on, but continue with your thought. Oh yeah. Just that the, uh, it's, it's much easier for us on a natural level to forgive each other uh, yeah. because we're of equal dignity. Uh, whereas of uh, God, as you already uh, mentioned before, it's really the majesty of God, the magnitude of the infinite okay. on our natural powers. So now the great thing about this is that God is not only infinitely just, whereby uh, we know that of our natural powers and even our will, we can't really do anything substantial enough to affect that. He is also infinitely merciful. 
Okay, this is where this is where I want to stop you for a second because now we need to pause about that. That's that's very extremely important. God is infinitely and perfectly just, and is in, infinitely and perfectly merciful. So He's both of those two things mixed in the perfect mixture, which is love. So to continue with the metaphor that you're using, it's impossible for us to fix the 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 sin uh, because we are not of the same nature or status or dignity of the one who is offended, which is God. So one who has, in order for the sin to be fixed, somebody has to be of that same co-equal dignity of God in order to fix our sins, in order to reconcile us to the Father. So of course, what did, what did God do as a, uh, as a result of that uh, dilemma? Ah, he took on human nature. There you go. is perhaps the most mind-boggling thing. I mean, we, we take it for granted, right? The, the uh, totally. Christmas narrative even shows up in a Charlie Brown Christmas special, right? Linus gives this great monologue. Uh, uh, but really, when you think about it, the all-infinite God incarnating in the world, even the heights of the, the ancient intellects like Aristotle, Blows you away. Yeah, they could come to the idea that there is a one God who's all-powerful, but never could they reason to the idea that God could and would take upon human flesh no. No. in a very personal relationship with his people. It's a scandal to the Greeks. Yeah. Um, it's, and the Jews, of course, it's like, what are you talking about? God is one. He's infinite. He's eternal. God, they didn't fully understand the notion that while God is one, he's also Trinitarian. He's also three persons. Yeah. And, uh, and as we know as Christians, uh, one of the persons came down from heaven, took on, our, took on our human nature to take on our sins and uh, to cleanse his temple, which is going to be the body, his body with us attached to it. So it's basically in doing that to cleanse the world. The world needs cleansing. And I think the Noah's Ark story was a metaphor for that, wasn't it? The world was baptized in that story. Oh, sure. Uh, the, one of the great things about the Old Testament is all these prefigurements to what we yeah. see in the New. There's a uh, great little line from Augustine, which um, various translations, but the best one because it rhymes is, in the old is the new concealed, and in the new is the old, the old revealed. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah, so that was a uh, sort of a prefigurement or a foreshadowing of, of baptism. And now every Christian is baptized um, to be cleansed. Now, the church herself, as you know, uh, needs serious renewal um, on a continuous basis. Because um, the church, as you know, its, its essence or its soul is divine. Um, its body is filled with sinners. Christ didn't promise the gift of impeccability, freedom from sin for his church on earth, but he did promise the gift of infallibility, which is freedom from error on matters of faith and morals, because they're the matters we need for salvation. But this whole thing about we're still, we're still fallible sinners, um, that needs to be addressed continuously within the church herself, doesn't it? It does. It does. And if we're if we're talking about the, so of course, if anyone watches this though or listens to this, they will 
um, that will recognize that we, the state of the church now, the Catholic church, to be more specific and pointed, um, is in need of lots of renewal. So it's not just that the particular priests and bishops are fallible like you and I, that, that they have a tendency towards sin. And that's been there through the ages. I mean, Jesus yeah. didn't call 12 perfections. He called mm -hmm. 12 apostles, which were fallible and sinful men. And oh, he yeah. No question. Saints. You know, so we, need, we, need, really participants. we need to take a break in a few seconds, but uh, those, those apostles that you mentioned, one of them betrayed him. One of them denied he ever knew him. Well, and they all betrayed him. In, in that sense, I was about to say, because only one of them uh, was, according to the Gospels, at the cross when Jesus was crucified. Yeah. All right. Um, after the break, uh, by the way, uh, one more thing, too. You mentioned that we're talking about the Catholic Church specifically, but there have been reports, too, that just a little bit more under the radar of other Christian denominations and other non-Christian uh, organizations. They're, they're all having problems with this post contraceptive pill sexual revolution era that we live in today with sexual abuse. So it's not just the Catholic Church. I just want to mention that. But we need to take a break. And I do want to talk about the church specifically and how to cleanse the temple. And we'll then, we'll again get into uh, more, more specifics exactly about how best we can cleanse our own temples. You're listening to Beneath the Service. Glad you could join us. Need to take a quick break. Um, so we will be back right after this. Welcome back to Beneath the Surface, segment number two, uh, talking about cleansing of the temple and what it means. My guest, Mr. John Tudors. John, welcome back. Good to be back for the second half. Absolutely. Ready to delve? Yes, indeed. All right. So before the break, we were talking about how uh, the, the cleansing of the temple relates to both the people of God and the individual people of God people as a whole, which we usually call the church in the Old Testament, it was just the, the people of Israel, uh, and of course the individuals that are involved in that. Uh, where do you want to take this in segment number two, Mr. John? So one of the things we spoke about uh, just before the break uh, was the, the church as far as the cleansing of the temple regarding uh, the hierarchy. Of the church. Uh, of the church. Of the church. And yes. we mentioned how the, the need for renewal uh, is due to sin. Uh, so Christ, for example, he chose sinful men. And the church, the church is not, um, uh, you know, absolved of, uh, of, it does not, uh, you know, it's, we still have sin because we're still humans, so still frail humans. That's Even though we're members of the body of Christ, the divine part of the church on earth does not keep the human part of the church on earth from sinning. Of course, it will in the next life, but it doesn't in this life. So we're sinners. We're a church of sinners. Absolutely. Definitely a church of sinners. So in that aspect alone, there's always been renewed need for renewal on a regular daily basis. Um, yeah. Really since, not just the beginning of the church, but really since the fall of Adam and Eve. Well, and, and of course, Jesus himself knew this at the beginning of the church. He instituted seven sacraments for that continuous renewal of God's grace in the church because well, we live in a fallen world. 
he did. And by his goodness, uh, he made those seven sacraments operable, even despite the fact that the members of his church are sinful themselves. So you, oh. can, you can have sinful people administer baptism. You can have sinful priests uh, consecrate the whole Eucharist and forgive sins. Because even, the if they're not, even if they're not in the state of grace, that's right. those and sacraments it's are effective. It's Christ through them, despite their particular holiness at that time. That's right. And that's because the holiness of God is not contingent upon our holiness. God is the only... Thanks be to God. It is. It is. Yeah. Grace. That God, God being the only necessary being uh, is always holy, always good. His grace is always on. Yes. And, he, and, and, that's, and that's what we depend on. No matter how many scandals come out throughout church history, we depend on Christ, his promise that the, the gates of hell will never prevail, and the Holy Spirit and his grace that come through his word and his sacraments. We have it infallibly. Yeah, it's, it really is. And, it's, and it's, a, it's a real comfort, too, because yeah. if it was based upon the administration of these sacraments and communicating grace for the help of, of others, that was dependent upon whether or not the those who administer it were holy themselves. Right. The church wouldn't have lasted two days. No, no question about it. I think uh, the fact that it has lasted for over two thousand years is testament that this is Christ's church. This is this is God's building, if you will. It's not. It's God's temple. It's not. It's not man's church. Um, what was I going to say? I had something in my mind, but continue. I will come back. Well, the, the, the second layer of renewal that's needed is in, you uh, you hinted at it when you mentioned scandals in the church. Okay. And, and just to use one, it's a public one. So uh, the Theodore McCarrick um, and sort of the Catholic Me Too movement, if you will. Uh, so for those who aren't familiar, uh, uh, then Cardinal um, Theodore McCarrick himself was basically outed as a homosexual predator. Uh, not just towards uh, teenagers, but also and primarily seminarians, where he would abuse his power as as one who's making the decisions to go in and take advantage of the seminarians. Perhaps most of them were in their 20s or late teens, but to basically uh, advance himself on them. And he would have this private beach house that was funded by people's own donations. So it was, in that sense, it's also a financial scandal, too, misappropriating the donations of people to help uh, sustain as well as grow the church as far as communicating God's goodness and his mercy, and instead it's used for things that are completely the opposite. It's incredible. It's amazing that somebody like him and others, because there's a lot that have come out, um, both false and true, uh, in, in the accusations. Uh, it's amazing that they were able to become ordained. Now, you're familiar with the fact that the church, in her laws, in a document in the, the mid-60s, 1960s, and again in a 2005 document by Pope Benedict the, uh, the, uh, the 16th, explicitly, explicitly laid out the law that nobody with a homosexual orientation can be ordained to the priesthood. How did all of these people slip through the cracks? How is it possible? Oh, well, the only reason why is it's organized. There's a, uh, this old little credo that often shows up in detective stories sometimes. Once is an incident, 
twice is a coincidence, three times is a pattern, and there's far more than three. Yeah. Back in 2002, when uh, Boston Globe broke out the pre-sex abuse scandal, and that was the first diocese to really hit it on a national level, there have been rumblings before then um, in smaller dioceses, but nothing that really hit it big. But Boston was the big fish. Right. And, and uh, yeah, it was just, it was, it was huge. It was uh, a lot of people weren't prepared for it. And I think even now there's a lot of people who are uh, still kind of reeling from it. But one of the things that came out of that was people of good faith were asking why, how could this happen? And there was one particular reporter, his name is Michael Rose from Cincinnati. And he uh, actually wrote a book on it called Goodbye Good Men. Um, so it wasn't meant to be scandalous or anything of that nature, but really just asking the question, why? So yeah. we actually, it's eyewitness accounts. Um, some people very trustworthy. I remember uh, Father John Trujillo on EWTN's Web of Faith. He's regular in there, very solid, very orthodox. And they're just giving their first-hand testimony, saying, this is what we experienced. They weren't trying to color it up. They're not trying to uh, sack anyone's character or anything of that nature. They just want to bring some of the truth to light, saying, look, there are these really bad things going on in the seminary. Yeah, I survived it, you know, by God's grace. But um, just this idea that it was deep-seated in uh, a good handful of seminaries. And it was something where the rectors of the seminary were involved, and sometimes even bishops. Church regulations, official church regulations, and of course, if you purposely ignore them, you're, you're sinning, were ignored. Yes, absolutely, they were ignored, and particularly on the, the higher level, too, because these regulations are for the priests themselves. So if they're actually screening through applicants, they're supposed to say, okay, what, what makes a good priest? What are all these qualities? Does this applicant have them at least in potential? Are there any major stumbling blocks that would prevent them from filling their priestly duties, right? So it's not that, you know, are you perfect or not? We, we know that they're going to have to be sinful, right? But are there major things, right? So homosexual inclination, that's a major thing, right? If, if uh, someone has, uh, you know, addictions to things, if he's an alcoholic, right? That would prevent him from being a good uh, Candidate. There are some major things that, that keeps you from the priesthood, and that's one of them. And, and I, I guess I can't get past the notion that there are that they're the reality that there were two official documents of the church specifically on this topic of the ordination of men with same-sex attraction, that it cannot happen in the church. Yep. It seems to be widely ignored. Yes. And, and denied. Yeah, and it's it's also directly related to the uh, the liturgy itself. The the priesthood itself is a very very masculine role, and the reason why is because Christ was a man. Yes. So when you have when you have a man who uh, who is supposed to be ordained to a priest, you want him to be a manly man. Now I don't mean a caricature, you know, of a macho man, manly man, not. or you know, Gaston from. Uh, you know, Disney's Beauty and the Beast or anything like that. I mean, the man who authentically lives out his masculinity as God gave it to him. And of course, the, the priest, you know, I don't want to say anything that people in the audience already know, but the priest is Altus Christus. He is another Christ when he's performing the sacraments. And Christ, of course, is the groom 
of the church, who is his bride. And then you have that groom-bride, masculine-feminine relationship going on in which the priest is the groom in those, in those instances to his congregation, the bride. Of course, you have to have that male-female, masculine-feminine dynamic going on uh, with, with uh, men that are healthy enough to be in that role. Yeah, absolutely. You want men who are willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of the other. Yes. I mean, there, there's this really great passage from Ephesians uh, chapter 5. Very few uh, passages where I remember all the chapter and verses, how very Catholic of me. You know, you hear the, the scripture in Mass so often, and you get the sense of it, but you don't always remember chapter and verse. Well, this one I do. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33, where St. Paul talks about the roles of a husband and wife. And what's very, very interesting about this is the punchline at the end of it all, where he says, but I speak about Christ and his church, and this is a great mystery. Yes. So this, this marital role of the, the husband and the wife very much mirrors the relationship of Christ and his church. And, his church. Now the, and the priest, as an altar Christus, is himself meant to give of himself the way Christ does. Christ died for us. Mm. A priest must be willing. Now, of course, it's, I'm not saying that it's easy, right? I mean, of they, none of us have the power to do it on our own. You have to be willing to at least let God lead you in yeah. that right direction. Right, right. I tell you what, the, the, the way to cleanse the temple, the way to attack the enemy is to recognize it and to name it so that you can know what it is and you know, have a plan and sweep it out of the temple. You with me? I am. It seems like from everything that I've read, the, this, the priest scandal, the sex abuse scandal in the 21st century has been almost 90% homosexually related to adolescents and young men. Yes. It's, and not, it's, not, it's not a child abuse scandal, which everyone all the way to the Vatican continues to mimic in their language, it really isn't. There's some of that, but the overwhelming majority has to do with the sin and the objective evil of homosexual behavior. Don't you have to recognize this, name it, and then go after it in order to truly cleanse the temple? Oh, absolutely. Uh, in, in a very real way that mirrors what we do when we go to confession, right? You know, what, are, what are the kind in number, right? So if, if I it's go, mortal, yeah, if it's serious. If it's a mortal sin, I say, I did this, I did it this many times. Now, the only way for me to be forgiven and to renew myself personally is in order to name those. The same thing on a communal level is necessary. We need to name it and say, this is a homosexual problem, yeah. and we need to take steps to correct it. Now, uh, for uh, one of the other big bombshells, so to speak, that came uh, almost immediately on the coattails of the uh, then Cardinal McCarrick uh, was the Archbishop Vigano bombshell letter that came out. Yeah. And in there, he, and, and in those he had a series of letters, and he was very keen to point out, too, that it's a problem of homosexuality in the priesthood. Now, some people who are listening will say, well, wait a second, are you demonizing these people just because they have same-sex attraction? Of course not. That's right, because they are still people. They, they have dignity. God made them that they might come to know and love him. 
But that being stated, we should also recognize the sin. Just as you said, if we don't name it and what it is, there's no way that we can get better. We are not. Let's just clarify this too. There's the, there's the internal disorder of orientation or attraction. That's not a sin because that's not voluntary. It's not voluntarily chosen. And of course, then there's the chosen behavior, which is a sin. It's the, that's the moral evil. One is a disordered attraction. One is a moral evil. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you can't go around having sexual relations if you're a priest, whether, whether it be heterosexual or disordered homosexual relations. But even before that, again, according to the, the rules of the church herself, you cannot be ordained a priest if you have same-sex attraction, even if you're not uh, acting upon it. That's correct. There's, That's no, correct. there's no clarity in, I, I don't hear people saying this. This is not disliking or disloving anybody. This is stating the facts so that we can properly love people and so that the church can be healthy and so that the church can truly love the world and transform the world. Because if we're not transformed, if the truth, if God's truth and grace aren't transforming us, how can we transform the world? We've let the world run uh, just all over the place in, in uh, the, the, sec the secular humanist revolution of the past 50 years because we have been defamed. Yeah, I, I, and I, I think you really hit it on there when you said that the renewal starts from us, uh, individually as persons, right? I mean, sure, we can identify the communal problem in the church, but if we don't first start with our own personal renewal, then that, that actually can't happen. It's not right. possible. Right. And of course, the sacrament of confession is everything when it comes to that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Sacrament of confession. Uh, and, and of course, with the confession comes the purpose of amendment. So if I, if I have a habitual sin and I keep going in week after week after week, and, and maybe I do intend to not do it again, but it just happens because I'm not paying attention. Well, what am I going to do? What are my intentions to amend that behavior, right? If I'm a compulsive thief, right? And I grew up in, the, in a bad neighborhood and it just got so ingrained in me. Yeah. And, and then, you know, how do I stop these habits, right? I have to recognize them, even if it looks odd to other people, right? Maybe have, those things that put me in a temptation. You have to recognize them. And if you remain in denial of them, you cannot be forgiven. It is, you're putting like a brick wall between you and God when, you, when you're in denial of them. You can't be forgiven if you're in denial. It's the bottom line. Adam and Eve, they, they fell, but then they denied it, which was, I mean, it's arguably even worse than their actual sin itself. I didn't do it, God. I, you know, it was your fault. It was her fault. It was the, you know. It seems like the church herself right now, as we speak, seems to be in some kind of denial. A lot of lay people are saying, all the stats are saying this is a, basically a homosexual problem of adolescents and young men in the priesthood. And we're still hearing the denial of this is a child abuse problem. This is a child abuse problem. How can you fix it if, you don't, if, you, if you're in denial? One, how, how can God cleanse you? Yeah, well, and I think getting back to what you said, you really just have to state it for what it is. Uh, in a certain sense, you have to dispense with politeness. Now, I don't mean that you don't try and communicate things well so that people understand them, but 
but in the sense that when sometimes when you name something that's evil, people say, well, that's, you really shouldn't mention that in public, right? Well, the sins of priests, you really shouldn't mention that in public. Well, I mean, yes, you want to avoid unnecessary scandal, but when something like this is so pervasive, well, scandal happens because you're not attacking the, the, the disorder. That's right. That's right. It not even happen. You know, we don't want to attack persons. We want to attack um, problems. We want to attack sin in the general sense so, and to sweep that out so that there, there won't be scandals like there have been. Yeah, that's usually important. That's usually important. And the, uh, yeah, the firm purpose of amendment. And uh, I think... Uh, and uh, I suppose this gets to uh, something you hinted at before, uh, uh, was uh, there's actually been some uh, sort of movements, if you will, uh, hmm. that are going within Christian and church circles uh, that include actually some very old school methods in there as far as helping people get back on track. Because there is, I think, a plethora of um, devices, so to speak, out there that can enslave us with, uh, in sin, and there has to be a conscious effort to uh, get out of that way, so to speak, of our own sinfulness and to allow God to transform us. That plus there needs to be a resolution to, yes. to, to for it not to happen again. I firmly resolve, with the help of Thy grace, the church must do this too as a whole. And yeah. I don't see a resolution. Have you heard? We now resolve to not to make sure that we do not ordain men with predominant same-sex attraction. Have you heard this resolution? Not since Benedict. I mean, in so Not much as he's saying, he's saying what the church has always taught, I mean, we shouldn't. And we, uh, I mean, technically one could, but uh, we invite disaster on ourselves. It's really no other way to say it. I mean, I could dance around it, but it really is a disaster. And when I say disaster, I mean, if you look at the fruits of the last 50 years, the the massive, massive decline in vocations. Yes. It's a, num it's a numbers thing. I well, mean, just, just not only that, just look at how many lay people, how many countless lay people have fell prey to the sexual revolution without proper moral leadership and guidance from the pulpit and religious education. Absolutely. So go the leaders. So go the, so go the, uh, the, the congregation. It, if you're silenced on one part of sexual morality, you're going to be silenced on all parts of sex because they're all woven in like, um, you know, the, uh, what do you call it? The, um, what, what did, what did uh, Cardinal Burden, Burden call the... Uh, oh, the seamless garment the theory. Gar yeah, yes. I, I'm not, I don't want to bring up his scene, what he meant by that, but sexual morality is a seamless garment. If you're going to be quiet about contraception, then you're going to be quiet about homosexual relations because both of them are, are perversions against the natural order. Well, they are. They are. Those who are embroiled in sin, when I say embroiled in sin, I, I don't just mean that we have sinful inclinations that we sin. We all do that. I mean those who uh, sort of hide away from it. They, they don't retreat to Christ as the remedy. They're more likely to let these things pass. Right. Um, and, and again, because we, we have to wrap this up, we only have about a minute left, but I think we, we, we've zeroed in on a pattern here that needs to happen with us as individuals to cleanse ourselves, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the church as a whole to cleanse the temple. And that is, we need to recognize our sins. We can't be in denial. That's, that's a 
a brick wall to God's forgiveness and healing. We need to recognize our sins. We need to call them for what they are. And we need to purposely amend ourselves to <clears throat> make reparation for them and to, uh, to try, at least, to make sure that they don't happen again. Uh, we have less than a minute left. You want to just uh, sort of wrap this up and what this means in the cleansing of the temple of the individual and the church. Yeah, so it starts with uh, us, ourselves, recognize our sins, recognize that we don't do what we ought to do. And if you have trouble doing that, pray. Go before the Blessed Sacrament. Go to church, spend time in quiet before God and ask him, help me to see myself as I really and am. by the way, that's thought, word, deed, and omission, all four, when it comes to recognizing our own sins. Yes, uh, all yeah. of them, all of them. I mean, a lot of people just think of deed. It's, it's all four of those things. That's right, that's yeah. right. And, uh, and then once we can uh, start to renew ourselves, only then can the emanation of Christ within us reach out into the world. If you want to change the world, change yourself. That's the bottom line. There you go. Amen to that. Amen. Uh, let us pray uh, that uh, we can uh, put that into action and truly try to change ourselves. Absolutely. We need it. Mr. John Tudoris, philosopher extraordinaire, thank you very much for your, uh, your guidance in our conversation today and delving beneath the surface on this topic of the cleansing of the temple. Glad you could listen, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Beneath the Surface. We will be back again in another week for another show. Until then, Paul Morado, my guest, Mr. John Tudoris. 